Teigen. And I'm Eric. This is season two of the Professional Weaver Podcast, where each week we have discussions with weavers in the supply chain that supports us with hopes to build depth, transparency, and connection within the hand weaving community. This week's episode was sponsored by Comfort Cloth Weaving, a company specializing in heirloom quality handwoven products for the home, as well as yardage for the fashion and accessories industries and value-added products for farmers and wool growers. Find out more at comfortclothweaving.com. We would like to thank all of our patrons of the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, go to proweaverpod.com support to make a one-time or monthly support contribution. This week, we are speaking with Daryl Lancaster from New Jersey. Daryl Lancaster, a hand weaver and fiber artist known for her award-winning hand-woven fabric and garments, has been constructing garments for more than half a century. She gives lectures and workshops to guilds, conferences, and craft centers all over the United States. The former features editor for Handwoven Magazine, She has written more than 100 articles in digital content, frequently contributes to various weaving and sewing publications, including Threads Magazine. She now has a YouTube channel, The Weaver Sews, where she shares her extensive experience sewing hand-woven garments. She now offers a complete line of digital sewing patterns for hand weavers. Daryl also maintains a blog at www.weaversew.com. Find her and all the work that she has done at www.darylancaster.com. I first met Daryl when she was teaching at Harrisville Designs in New Hampshire. During her course, I would spend late nights talking about my business and what I wanted to do, and she would give me great insights and encouragement on how to grow and develop my own voice. She is an amazing teacher and friend, always rooting me on with whatever endeavors I choose to take on. We hope you enjoy our conversation as we talk about her beginnings as a weaver, how her career evolved over time, and how she is adapting her work to the digital market. We had so much fun talking that we went a little long during our interview, so we broke up the interview into two episodes. Part one will be this week, and part two will be next. We began speaking with Daryl about how the seeds for weaving were planted early. Uh, When I was young, I mean, like, you know, 10 years old or so, my mom was an amazing garment maker. And she had decided that it was important for her children to also know how to be at least competent garment makers. I mean, not necessarily to have the same passion she had, but it was an important, back then it was in the 60s, it was an important household skill to know in your quest to be the perfect housewife. So I learned to sew. I learned to sew well. By the time I was 15, I had a tailoring business and uh, in town. And then I went off to college. And it was a challenge to decide what to study. Mm. First, back then, it was not usual for daughters to go off to school. You know, we were kind of expected to find a husband and get married and then, you know, do what my mom did, raise a family. But my father, being very progressive, wanted me to at least go away and find a better opportunity of drawing from a bigger pool of husband material. You know, and I know that sounds just really weird, and all, but this is my generation. I, you know, right. I mean, this is the 50s and 60s. And so I went away to school, but it was really a struggle what to major in because I had these amazing sewing skills, but I couldn't cook to save my life. And the thought <laughs> of a home economics career was not appealing. And I had, um, I loved the art department that was in my high school. We did a lot of crafts and we did a lot of art and we did a lot of things that really spoke to my soul. And so uh, I decided I wanted to major in art. And I had a very small portfolio, whatever I pieced together from my high school years. But it was enough to get me into a state college um, here in North Jersey. Um, And When I embarked on this art, academic art career, which is very different um, in, you know, the world of making, the themes and all. I mean, it's important that in an art career, if I could just summarize it, you are taught to look at the world in a different way. And you are taught to really 
embrace what you see and turn it into something that wasn't there before. But everything that you produce needed a narrative and it needed um, a reason to be there and it needed a dialogue and it needed to be able to engage with the viewer and mean something. That said, in the spring of my second semester, I discovered they had a textile studio. (gasps) It was full of looms. It had spinning wheels. It had yarn. It had amazing things in it. And this is a language I had already spoken. I loved photography. I loved clay. I loved the feeling of the wet clay. I loved throwing a pot. But there was something about the pull of textiles which was a language I already spoke, that pulled me into the weaving studio. So there I kind of parked myself for the rest of my academic tenure and learned everything I could. And when I ran out of classes to take, I made up classes and did independent studies. And I (laughs) embraced textiles as best I could in an academic setting. Mm. And when it was time to graduate, um, sadly, one of my grandmothers died. And left me $1,000, which I then invested in a loom. So I got my first loom in 1978. And I still have that loom. That loom means more than anything to me in the world. And it was an eight shaft. It was 45 inches wide jack loom with a couple back beams, some of them sectional. I had no idea what half this equipment did. (laughs) But, you know, but... I got as much loom as I could for the $1,000. It even came with a bench. And mm-hmm. and, uh, and, a, and he asked me what size reed I wanted. And I actually had no idea what that meant. I had no idea that you could change the reed. I, I yeah, this is academia. I right. thought that whatever reed the loom had, you had to work with. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, <laughs> it made you resourceful, but it didn't make competent cloth. Right. So... You know, so I bought a loom and I remember starting to just struggle. I had to get yarn. I had nothing. I didn't have shuttles. You know, I had to slowly acquire this. And I had acquired a husband in there who was always my best supporter. I mean, you know, he'd give me the money for shuttles and yarn and I'd try to make things. I had no market. I had no outlet. I had no venues. But I loved it. I loved the loom. It was like the first day we were together. It was my destiny. I didn't know what that meant. I had no idea what was out there. So how that segues into becoming a professional. Yeah. I ran into an old art teacher from high school um, at a shoe store, oddly enough. And we got to talking and she told me that I should belong to this organization in the state of New Jersey, which was called, at the time, New Jersey Designer Craftsman. And it was sort of an organization of craftspeople. And I wasn't even sure what that meant. But I joined. I paid my, you know, $10 or whatever it was. And I joined and I got a newsletter. And in it was a couple of women advertising for a production weaver. And I had no idea what that meant. You know, in your 20s, you, you don't know what you don't know. And Now everybody has Google, which I always say somehow a little bit makes you lazy because you just Google the answer. But with no resources, you become resourceful and you figure it out. And it makes you so much better than if you would just ask somebody to show you. Right. And so I got, you know, I joined this organization and I answered this ad. And I didn't know that I wasn't a production weaver because I didn't know what that was, but I had a loom. And, and I could sort of set it up. Um, and then I found out what they were about. They were uh, two women who had met in a tapestry class. And they decided to become designers. And they were designing this mohair yardage that they would sell to designers in New York City. And it was beautiful. Yardage brushed. And, you know, it had these specific specs. And, and uh, they were using stick shuttles to weave the yardage with. And I didn't know enough to not know why they weren't using boat shuttles. But I asked, and they didn't know what a boat shuttle was. So I thought, okay, we're all in the same boat here. And, and so I, I did a sample for them. They loved it. And then the first, the first assignment they gave me, they sent me a box of mohair. It was 30 yards of mohair, maximum width on my loom, 45 inches wide. And I, you know, I was like, oh my God, I have no idea what to do with this. But I did it. I yeah. did it because I was young enough to not be deterred that I didn't know anything. And I did it and I did a good job on it. And 
I was launched. I was going to have a career in this. And then that career evolved over many, many, many years. I mean, that was 1979, 80, somewhere in there. And and that relationship lasted for a couple of years. I did a lot of yardage. I was really good. And the thing with starting working for somebody else who sets the rate of what you're going to get per yard is that it makes you become resourceful and efficient. Because yeah. if you want to up your, you know, your amount of money coming in, you just get better at what you're doing. Mm. And that taught me such a skill set that uh, to this day, those jobs that I had in, along the way were actually who defined what defines me now. I mean, each of those jobs, I learned integral parts of the business. Yeah. I, I've been actually learning that very same thing. I've been weaving like my first big career job. I wove 50 yards for a company and it was like, well, you wove 150 yards in right. 50 yard chunks. Yeah. yeah. In 50 yard chunks. <laughs> right. right. Which is actually a difference, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but it was still like, oh my goodness, I could actually do this. I mm. could make this. And now I'm still like, I'm still finding those jobs even during this time, which is right. crazy. But and, Well, they're coming, they're finding us now. Yeah. Yeah. Which right. is even you crazier. Have set- yeah, once you set and establish that relationship, then they start finding you, which then the downside of that is sometimes too many of them find you. And then, you know, you're kind of at this crossroads. I can't do any more than me. I'm just me. Right. And, you know, and that sets you up for all you work and work and work to get to this level. And then suddenly you're completely overwhelmed. Yeah. And that has happened to me many times in my life. And the path out has sometimes um, been painful. Yeah. So when you were the transition from being a production weaver to being an artisan and a teacher, how was that kind of transition for you? Well, it, there was a huge chunk in there between the two. Okay. So when I, yeah, so I was a production weaver for somebody else for a number of years. And, you know, when you just sit there churning out work at, on somebody else's specs, you know, you have to get good at that. You have to meet those specs. And, and that is an important part of that training. But I started to think, you know, with endless hours in my brain to just sort of think, what would I make if I were on my own? What if it was my voice? What if it was my, um, the pieces that were on the loom were coming from me instead of for someone else? And that started me getting curious. Uh, Now I had money coming in so I could invest in other yarn of my own and I could see where life would take me. And I began to do craft fairs. Okay. Um, they overlapped a little, but I finally was able to, you know, find someone to replace me at the other production job and then become a production weaver on my own work. And mm-hmm. I did that for 10 years. And there is no greater training than interfacing with a customer and um, learning what they want. And I got a really good piece of advice early on in that career. And it was from a good friend who was a weaver. We had gone to school together. And I ended up hiring her to help me, you know, do my the, the amount of volume that I needed to make these craft fairs happen. And I was started out doing table linens and placemats and throws. We called them Afghans back then. And just things that that did not involve clothing, oddly enough, because I knew so much about clothing, I couldn't kind of make the transition right. from mm-hmm. tailored garments to handwoven clothing, especially with the yarns that were available back then. Mm-hmm. And and so I started out with things that were safe, and, and I qu- quickly discovered that I really didn't want to weave 30 yards of placemats. It was just not inspiring to me. It was not anything. And, and so this friend said to me, you know, Daryl, people will spend a lot more on themselves than they will on their dining room table. And you can only use one or two sets of placemats and give them as gifts. Otherwise, people can use multiple jackets. They will buy multiple things for themselves. You know, think about what you're producing and stay true to yourself and find a way. And and she was absolutely right. You know, that staying true to yourself was an underlying theme through my entire career. Yeah. So I started to do handwoven clothing. And for 10 years, you know, I produced, I would put 30 yards on at a time. I don't know why 30 is the magic number, but <laughs> I would put 30 yards on at a time. And I uh, I wove my little heart out. 
I would weave 30 yards in a sitting. And this is just with a hand loom, a basic jack Oof. loom. I got really good and really fast. And then I would cut the stuff out. I had my sister help me sew because we were trained together. And so, you know, she sewed the same way I did. And I did that for 10 years until I was so burned out that my attitude towards customers um, started to fail. Mm -hmm. um, the impatience. I was tired. I didn't want to weave anymore. The the joy of it, discovery and exploration was gone. Mm. Yeah. It was gone. And I watched some of the new weavers coming in to craft, you know, the craft market. There'd be some one across diagonally the the aisle from me. And I'd watch their enthusiasm and they were just bubbling with like, oh my God, oh my God, I can't believe I'm here. And I think, oh my God, I can't believe I'm here. And, <laughs> and it was it was it was time to be done. Yeah. But making that transition into the next phase was uh, probably one of the darkest times in my life because I didn't, I didn't see life outside of craft fairs, and neither did my husband, who was really angry with me um, for wanting to give up what I had worked for because he didn't feel he had that luxury. He was an engineer with the telecommunications industry, and he couldn't walk away because he was burned out, right. you know, and it really set back then the differences between our careers and the responsibility. And um, even though we thought going into the marriage, we couldn't have kids, suddenly the universe showered me with not one, but two, right. which gave me, I hate to say it, the ultimate excuse to step away and, yeah. um, and rethink my entire future. So in there, I started to get asked by local groups, uh, you know, with little kids in tow, you know, can you come and talk to our group about marketing your work? Oh, of course I can. I did it for 10 years. Right. Can you come and talk to our group about um, tips for photographing your work, you know, to get that five slides that'll get you into shows? Yep, I can do that. Can you come and talk to our group about how you work with handwoven fabrics? And I thought, oh, yeah, I could do that. And then, like you said, once the word gets out, oh, Daryl did this thing on this topic, and she was pretty good. And, you know, and I had a lot of pitfalls along the way. I had classes, hands-on classes with students in tears because I completely overestimated what anybody could accomplish. Mm. You know, I didn't understand because I could do it. That didn't mean they could. Right. And you learn from that. You completely learn from that. But the biggest thing that I got from teaching which was so important. You know, towards the end of my craft fair days, I began to resent that I could only make work for people that could afford it. And that limited, you know, people would come and look longingly, look longingly at my work. And, you know, and and I knew they couldn't afford it. It would never happen. They they appreciated what I did, but I felt badly that this was an elite product that I had. Right. And when I started teaching, the joy of empowering a person to make it themselves absolutely superseded everything. I, I really loved um, that I could look at someone and say, um, it's okay. I can teach you to do that and you will do it yourself and be so much happier with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just took, I took one of your classes and it made me feel so much more confident at my sewing machine to actually be like, oh, I can sew a straight hem. I'm not bad at this. Like, I don't know why I was doubting myself all these years. And it just, it's this, it just opened up such a world of possibilities. Right. And and that it's it's almost like when I teach a class, ultimately what I do is I give people permission. Yeah. And we all need that permission in life. It's okay to fail. It's okay to have to go to plan B. It's okay to rip it out. And the joy with which is why I always love fiber is that you can always fix it, rip it out, make something else out of it. It's kind of not like that with clay. Once you put it in and close the kiln door, what you get is what you get. Right. And with a tremendous amount of skill, you could be predictable, mostly. But with cloth, you know, there's always a second light. There's always a pair of shears. There's always a needle and thread. And yeah. I love that flexibility for it. Yeah. So it's been an interesting time because of the pandemic. You're not able to, because I know you used to travel a lot to teach and do all of these things. How has that transition been to bring your teaching to a digital realm? 
It has been a freaking miracle. And um, I, I look back over this last year and I have to think, you know, my husband passed away five years ago mm-hmm. and there was my, one of my biggest supporters and my biggest challenge in my business because, you know, we were a team. And although I stayed remarkably self-reliant through all of it, I really wasn't because he carried the financial load. He had the job with the benefits. He had the ability to keep me moving forward when, you know, there wasn't work. Um, and so I'd like to think that he was, is, was watching out for all of us. When he was nearing retirement age, um, I had sort of expressed to him that my goal was eventually, is as a, I was a couple of years younger than he was, and artists don't ever retire. They just kind of reinvent themselves. You know, I, you know, you don't retire in the arts. You just do other creative things. And, right. and so I had really expressed the desire to leave a digital legacy. He was my complete tech support. He built my first website. He was the one that kept my computers up to date. He's the one that built my blog, you know, interface. He he was the one built my shop, my the my e-shop that I have. He was the one that did all the research and set it up, and then I just had to execute. Right. And and I and I but I wanted to be the one to execute, not rely on him to update things, which was all fine. But sadly, he died on me before he could retire and ever bring me to that next level of leaving a digital legacy. Mm -hmm. So fast forward through a very series of unfortunate events for my daughter, who is now, you know, in her late 20s. She ended up moving home. She got very sick and um, was moved home to recover. And, And she was quite the weaver herself. And so when she moved back home, there were another five looms that I had to incorporate to my already 30 looms. Um, yeah, th- we got quite the collection here. And and although this is uh, an audio podcast, you can't see behind me, but I got 35 looms in this renovated garage here behind me. It's part of my house. Anyway, um, my daughter has my husband's thought processes, his brain, his, her, her millennial knowledge of the computer, as she likes to remind me all the time. <laughs> I'm a millennial. I know my way around a computer. And I ended up hiring her, yeah, which was an absolute, you know, godsend in this time of pandemic. This time last year, I was getting off a plane from Portland, Oregon, where I was teaching for 10 days. And that was it. That was the end of that life as I knew it. And, you know, we thought maybe it was a couple of weeks, which turned into a couple of months, which turned into, you know, um, now going on a year, but for me, a couple of years, because, you know, like craft fairs and teaching venues, you book a year and a half, sometimes two years in advance. I have bookings all the way into 2022. And I will tell you, it was a challenge because I'm already over 65. I have lived a life and then some. And when do you stop? When do you shift gears? And, you know, like getting pregnant in my mid-30s, um, unexpectedly, this quarantine has given me the gift that I could never find any other place, and that was time. Ah. It stopped everything. And, uh, you know, th- there are these sayings that, you know, when... Uh, when um, you know, you know, somebody uh, was stuck with a quarantine back in the 1600s. He developed calculus, you know, and, and, you know, people are like, I just want my house clean, you know. But I always made these excuses. No, I couldn't offer the patterns I used to teach digitally because there was no time to do that. Well, now I had time. Yeah. And I had a daughter who was savvy enough. I made her go online and take classes in Photoshop Illustrator and, and uh, Adobe Premiere. And she learned and she's a quick learner and she's got her father's brain. And so we embarked on this journey together. And this, I will say, is the first time in my life that I have had to be reliant on another person. I cannot produce these YouTube channels. I cannot, you know, do the the, the digital um, uh, rewrite of my patterns and produce them digitally. I mean, I've had to rely on her. And that's a little scary for me. But on the other hand, she is making possible what I wanted to do, but couldn't do myself. Right. Mm. So it has been, we, we drop a new video every week. My YouTube channel is called The Weaver Sews, and it's specific about garment construction in the um, 
bigger picture of hand weaving. So garment construction for hand weavers. And it is great now because she acts as director. She'll read my script. She'll look at it and she'll say, you can't say that. No, mom, that's not politically correct. You know, that's insensitive. That's, it needs to be said this way. And, you know, I'm a product of the fifties and sixties. I, things I say that I don't think twice about aren't really considerate of, you know, other peoples, other body types, other, you know, um, uh, sources for words that we use. And I've had to really rethink a lot of what I do, but I have her to slap my wrist once in a while and go, mom, no. (laughs) (laughs) But it is a tremendous way for me to give back to a community that has supported me for 40 years. Yeah. And and I still weave and I weave a lot and I have been more productive this year than I have in the last 10 years combined. Wow. I know. And just because I have time. Yeah. You know, I get up in the morning and I kind of tick off in my head goals that I'd like to see I accomplish by the end of the day. And you know, and it has been um like I have this scarf warp that's on the loom behind me. I want that cleared because um, every year I do a run of six scarves. They're very complex and I've hand dyed all the yarns and they're eight shaft. And I do six on um, the same run and I use them as donations for art organizations that I support. And yeah. the Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey is coming up with their virtual auction at the end of the month. And uh, I promised them a scarf. So I got to get these off. There's nothing <laughs> like deadlines, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's... A- the biggest thing is like I I've now been getting like all these jobs and I'm keep pushing off things that I want to do for myself. And I'm now I'm like, OK, I have a deadline to get these jobs done so I can do something fun and experiment and try something new. And it's been last year was our most profitable year, surprisingly, for like the last five years. And it's just I don't know what it is. Something was in the air. It's like yeah. people want to support artists and want to learn and want to grow. Yeah. And not to be confused with gross income. Yeah, no. We, we didn't spend a lot. We didn't go to shows. We had a lot less overhead last year. But it was, in fact, the most profitable year for us. Yeah. Which was very interesting. And I think, like you said, I mean, even for us, having that time to... um slow down and rethink how we run the business. I mean, something that we really liked doing for the company was going to shows and like keeping that pace and moving and creating and meeting people and seeing the product from the yarn as it arrives in, you know, smashed into boxes from our suppliers all the way through to like leaving in, you know, like a perfect perfectly folded in a bag with a customer that's like just so psyched to have it um we sort of were we once once we got through last year we were like oh do we really even need to do shows anymore and so now we're like okay so once shows are back and they prove that they're making money again and people are feeling safe going to them we'll go back to like six or eight a year and that's it just the ones you really like yeah. Yeah. Oh, I so completely identify with every word you just said. <laughs> Absolutely. Every word you just said. And it is a vicious cycle because, you know, first those six or so that you like, you have to be able to get into them. And right. occasionally you wouldn't get into them. And that right. would like completely screw up your, you know, the way you had planned out the year. And then, you know, the cost to do them gets worse and worse and worse. And can you, as one person, physically do the volume of work that you need to make that show profitable? Right. And, you know, it became um, almost overwhelming. I did have a, a, a production weaver work for me. I had my sister who helped me sew, got her through architecture school. And yet um, it was still my business and it was still my mm-hmm. vision and it was still my product that you, like you said, you put in that bag and you handed it to the customer. In my case, I would take their measurements and go home and make the garment to order, you know, because right. because you don't usually ever have exactly what they want on the shelf. 
And, um, and, and I used to have this thing I used to do because you need a, a set of examples in the booth if you're selling clothing in each of the sizes, so right. that at least you know you can come in close and they can get a general idea of what it's going to be like with some minor tweaks. But um, when I would uh, have a customer, you know, I'd start, I'd sell the next to last of that size uh, sample, I would always put a sold sign on the last one so it wouldn't leave the booth. Mm-hmm. And somehow with looking at, you know, half a dozen pieces saying sold on it, it made people want to buy more, which was always such a hoot. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, but uh, I mean, sometimes I could adjust a a hem on a sleeve while they waited. But for the most part, a lot of what I did ended up having to be done ahead. And then that deadline, I had to go home and make it and then ship it out to them. And so, you know, it was a little bit different than wrapping up a product that leaves your booth. You know, there was follow up on my end. Yeah. So I know that there's a lot of weavers who are interested in getting into the wearables market and kind of exploring that avenue. What are some words of advice that you would have for people who are interested in getting into wearables or into clothing with their handwoven goods? Um, Well, the first thing is you got to know the medium. You have to know the medium really well. Um, And I know that there are people who hire garment makers to do that part of the job, but working with hand-woven fabric is slightly different than other commercial fabrics. And mm-hmm. um, and if you want to know why they're different, watch my YouTube channels. Right. Yes. Um, but the, I think the most tricky part of making clothing for the public, especially with hand-woven, besides, you know, understanding the medium, is, is fitting people. Um, know your customer, define who your customer is. And, and the problem that I'm seeing more and more of, and I will tell you, I was guilty of this in the beginning, because if you're not a trained pattern maker, you know, we tend to rely on commercially what's out there. And you work with the commercial size range that's out there, which doesn't, I will tell you, I've been doing, I've been sewing for almost 60 years it does not fit anybody. Right. And I realized that right up front. So understanding who your demographic is, who your customer is, what their body types are. You know, the thing is, is when you get somebody who can afford your work, more often than not, they're um, a, a much more mature body, menopausal, postmenopausal, premenopausal, you know, in that range that their body's different than when they were, you know, young and, you know, active in their 20s. Right. And it's important to identify your demographic, who buys your stuff, and design for that body, um, yeah. knowing that there's always exceptions, you know. And that's the same thing when I teach. I know who, you know, and th- th- you'll laugh at this, Tegan. Um, you know, I know who I teach. And every once in a while, I get some young, spunky thing like, Tegan, who comes into a class and doesn't fit the demographic. So we have to kind of re-engineer the garment with a more youthful approach, a more youthful look, and you did it brilliantly. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, it was, I wait, when you were doing the fittings, I waited until the very end because I wanted to see how you were you were fitting people, how you were talking about it. And then I just walked up and you were like, oh, I know this is going to fit you. Like... (laughs) There's not even a question. And I put it on and it fit perfectly. And I was like, all right, let's rock. Like, this is great. But it was, it was such, it was so cool to see that process because like the only experience I have is sewing for my own self. So to see other people having these different size adjustments and alterations, it's like, it kind of opened my eyes like, oh, I can't just design for what I like. Like other people have different bodies and different needs for how they want things to fit. Mm. Right. You know, and the and and the youth market is very different than the older demographic who has the money. You know, right. and my daughter found this, um, and she was doing um, a line of production uh, knitting machine uh, knitwear, okay. um, and doing these, you know, beautiful and dragon shawls that when you just opened it up, you look like dragon wings, and they were wool and they were beautiful warm shawls, but they had dragon scales and tails down the back, and they're just this amazing piece of artistry but the market but but the cost to produce them and the yarn didn't match the demographic of who wanted that kind of thing 
Yeah. And, you know, and, and she found that very frustrating because, you know, everybody who came by who just was absolutely enamored with them was in her demographic, but didn't have the money. Right. And and so it is, you know, it is so hard to learn the market. And then when you think you've learned the market, of course, the market changes. Yeah. And um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't tell you how many craft beers I was doing when the stock market would crash. Uh, you know, it's almost every major crash all through, you know, that whole 1980s period. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I was at a craft fair and you'd be like, OK, this is not going to go well this weekend. <laughs> and, right? you know, a snowstorm hits. I mean, I remember being in Baltimore when a two foot snowstorm hit and they don't have snow removal equipment or they didn't back then. And I remember, right. you know, being stuck in a hotel room and all this money that I'd spent, you know, gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that is, you know, that is, that is our lives. And when you look today, the entire year was gone. You have to be flexible. You have to be so flexible as a craftsman. It's not just about this great work that you do. It is running a business. And I found that part, although I could do it and I was decent at it and I had tremendous business integrity. Um, that was a gift from my father, but but I still found that completely opposed to the whole creative process. Yeah. And I think that's the part that I dislike the most even now about what I do. I mean, I teach, I love teaching remotely online, but the paperwork, oh my goodness. I mean, it just doesn't end. And I sell products online. I sell digital products online. And, you know, I just got an email from somebody who... For some reason, all the the emails that came from my eShop with the links to the digital content have disappeared. Uh-huh. You know, and there are a couple of email platforms that I think don't like things with links and immediately send them off into spam world that you never see. And so, you know, you have to go back now and spend time figuring out what went wrong if you can, and otherwise, you know, just manually uploading the file to them. And it is, uh, you know, that's that kind of stuff that it sounds great in theory, but you're spending a lot of time still at the computer doing paperwork. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's why I have this lucky guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, you know, I think that um, what a lot of people don't realize when they're like, oh, I want a web store is just all, the sheer amount of bullshit that comes with having a web store. Like you just, said it perfectly. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's just uh-huh. like you. Uh-huh. You know, I'll set it up. I'll get it working. But then, even though your payment processor is working and mm-hmm. we can check people out just fine, and it's correctly watching for fraud and all this other stuff is set up, you're still going to get people who just are not paying attention to what they're doing and they can't check out. And that is a phone call or that is an email or that is whatever it is. And then now you're spending time doing customer support and you're doing this and you're doing that. And then somebody or somebody does check out and they put their grandmother's address in instead of their address because it auto filled. And now, you know, the last thing they sent was to their grandmother. So it's, you know, it's just never it's a never ending sort of river Mm -hmm. of stuff that you don't want to deal with, but you have to deal with that absolutely correct yeah Mm -hmm. it's just and i think that that's what people people don't talk about that they just talk (laughs) about oh you can put all your stuff online and sell it there you don't have to have a brick and mortar and i just smile and nod and say Wow, thank you for that idea. Right. And okay, can you see the eye roll? I got a roll. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it is. It is, uh, you know, with all of this now, this digital and, you know, and the YouTube channel, I mean, I get people who comment and they ask questions and i have to answer those questions, even if it's just like great. So, so you'll laugh. My daughter, um, I mean, I just reached um, a thousand subscribers and and now I'm over it. So she said to me, well, mom, we have to do an AMA. And I said, what the hell is an AMA? (laughs) And she said to me, mom, everybody who's on YouTube does this. It's called Ask Me Anything. I'm thinking, really? Ask Me Anything? Oh, this could be entertaining. And so, you know, and I made sure when I did the AMA request, you know, we did, we shot, before we shot uh, the regular video on Friday, I just did a, uh, or two Fridays ago, I did a little, you know, one minute 
that dropped on um, Monday a week ago. And, you know, it was basically about the AMA and that you could ask me anything and we'll cut it off on March 15th and then I'll do a video or two to answer all these questions. And, <laughs> but, you know, every time I post a video, I've got people from all over the world that are asking me questions. And, right. and there's only a few, but... But you have to stop and you have to answer them, you mm. know, and then I keep the blog going. And so people comment on that or they won't comment there. They'll write me separately. And, you know, you ha it's like you have to keep the entire world. Um, it's part of the package. Right. You know, I can't just say, go look at the thing and, you know, not deal with anybody. And that's not the way I've always run my business. I've always right. been available mm -hmm. and I will continue to be available as long as I can. And I can't even hire somebody to do that for me. They just don't know the answers. Right. Yeah. That's the biggest so, thing. It, it is. It really is. Um, and so when I look back over my career, there's absolutely nothing that I would change because each step led me to where I am. Mm. And I have, you know, my daughter works for me. Um, she's finishing up another degree in um, the animal science field. Um, she has one uh, bachelor's in that, but then it wants to get a vet tech license and has worked in the field for many years um, mm -hmm. and will eventually return to that, even if it's just part time. But this time here that she's been with me um, and this this building of this amazing studio in my garage and then my sewing studio is now in the basement, which is wonderful and cozy and I love it. And that's where we shoot the videos. And I kind of feel as though that I'm set on my path for the next, you know, however many years till I tire of that um, or, you know, get sick or get, you know, some age-related illness because mm. my husband died at 65 of cancer, you know, right. and, you know, and, and I mean, I could get COVID, you know, I could be incapacitated. I mean, it's just life is so not guaranteed that I feel like this mad scramble to put as much as in place as I can. So I will leave this legacy that will go on beyond me. And, um, and then I feel like I have done my job. Yeah. It, so um, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm so lucky that I have had the ability both in me and the, you know, the people around me to allow it to happen that um, I have been able to follow a dream. And yeah. it's been able to change course, sometimes um, reluctantly, you know, um, but but it has been probably one of the, the greatest gift of my life is that I had people all along the way who were incredibly supportive and mm. and allowed me to do what I needed to do and guided me when I needed guiding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's something so I love that you have each other <laughs> <laughs> for better or for worse. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean. Creatively, we are pretty different because we we have diff we have different approaches, and we oftentimes, when there's a design problem, we will have an argument. It's all in good fun, but it's. I think of it like I go into them uh, like like critique in college or like a design discussion in an office. You like pitch the idea, you defend the idea, and then. She pitches her idea, defends her idea, and then we work on figuring out where it is. I don't take it as personally as she does because <laughs> she's much more invested in it. Right. And I'm trying. I'm coming at it trying to solve a problem. Right. You know. So she does sometimes. Sometimes she has an argument with me when I'm just discussing a solution with her. And, you know, and I've had this twice, not only with my late husband, because we did this all through my career. And then I have it with my daughter, who is his daughter, too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she'll finally say to me, um, well, I have a very different way of looking at this mom and I have a very different opinion. But you are the one that is paying me. So we, I will have to yield to you. But it is with the understanding that I don't agree with you at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and you know, that's fine too. We can work right. that way. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it is challenging, um, you know, living with your daughter, um, who is your employer, um, employee, mm -hmm. and who's also your housemate and shares your studio. But we make it work. Yeah. Um, we do make it work. And, 
um, I and through this quarantine to have somebody to live with has been just such a gift yeah. for both yeah. of us, really. Um, and be able to share that, you know, I'm not alone. Um, and so I have just each morning I wake up, there's just not enough hours in the day. I mean, I've got time, but of course, you know, when you get some time, you want more time. Right. And when you get some yarn, you want more yarn. And when you get some looms, you want more looms. Yes. It, it is uh, It is a vicious, wonderful cycle that I would not change for the world. Yeah. I mean, we just stockpiled on yarn last year because we would come up with an idea and be like, oh, let's just order the yarn and have it ready when we have time. Mm-hmm. So now we have bins of boxes waiting to be dyed waiting to be made into warp and it's like okay well yeah because we had all this time so when the pandemic hit we were we had just gotten back from baltimore i'm sure our listeners love hearing the story for the millionth time um but it's it's a good one just gotten back from baltimore we were getting in the van essentially the next week to leave for um atlanta for acc atlanta and they canceled ACC Atlanta. And um, we were like, oh, okay, well, hopefully this isn't like a big, you know, I mean, it was an awful big show to cancel. And then, you know, emails started rolling in like one later that month canceled. And then, mm-hmm. you know, slowly the whole year basically just disappeared. Yeah. And so pretty much in the time. However, however long it took for us to get the mics here is how long it took us to start the podcast because we were like, we, it was like a week. We thought, oh shit, what are we going to do? We got to like figure something out. And I think that just being the two of us without having like full time, last year we were gearing up to hire weavers and we were like ready, you know, ready to go. And we were going to have one, if not two people weaving for us last year to keep up with shows and wholesale Mm -hmm. and all that. And um, so we were like, well, that's going to be gone as of right now. And then what are we going to like? How are we going to spend our time so that we don't come out of 2020 the same way we went into 2020? And if we did that, like what a what a waste and how like how much we would have let ourselves down by doing that so we got the mic started the podcast and just started like coming up with ideas and thinking about projects and then because our suppliers had stuff in stock we didn't want to risk it because we had no idea how long the pandemic would last or what supply chains would be looking like or any of that so we just started ordering our supplies so now we've got all these supplies ready to go but by the time we were ready to start on those projects we started getting orders to the point that we couldn't do the projects (laughs) yeah i identify with that a lot lot. Mm -hmm. and you can't turn those orders down because that's what puts food on your table right right you know it's a constant dilemma of being true to your own vision and yet making a living and they are sometimes not compatible (laughs) right yeah but um i applaud that and and that was kind of how i felt as it became obvious that one by one is like conferences and everything were just ending this year i started to think you know i don't want this year to look back and think what a waste you know i've always said that i couldn't do things because i didn't have the time and now Mm. and now i do and so you know, not knowing that this pandemic was coming up, you know, and having my daughter move back home for other reasons um, with her five looms and thinking I had a loom in every room of the house. It was, it was absolutely an untenable situation. And then I remember October now, two Octobers ago, waking up one morning and, and this voice in my head, you know, as you're kind of in that twilight sleep, you get great ideas. And this voice in my head said, just renovate the garage below you. And, and I thought, you know, I came awake and I thought, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. Why would I do that? And I rolled over and I remember putting the pillow over my head and this voice wouldn't shut up. <laughs> and, and so I called my handyman and I, I said, this voice keeps telling me to run. I said, what do you think? And he looked around and he goes, well, first you got to get rid of everything that's in here. You have no idea. I mean, my late husband saved everything. And so it would, that in itself was a challenge. But the point is that the heating system, you know, which is, it was a, it's a uh, ductless, uh, 
HVAC system that goes into the block wall of the garage mm-hmm. was put in this, you know, uh, like last week, a year ago. And so it's like it got put in. So I had this new studio, which I couldn't even use because I had to get on a plane immediately and go to Oregon to teach. And so when I walked back in and the world shut down, I stood in the middle of this studio and I smiled. And I was like, wow, what an incredible gift to have this new space to be to explore, to be creative in and, you know. And then last October um, was Spinning and Weaving Week, and the um, uh, Handweavers Guild of America asked me to be a part of that and do this virtual studio tour because they had heard I had this new studio. And so I wanted to get every floor loom, you know, on the floor warped. So it really looked productive. And that was so much fun to have the time to just oh, let's put this on this loom. And oh, what about if we do that on that loom? And oh, I need to do a run of dish towels for the you know winter because that's what I give as my holiday gifts. And um, so let's get those on. It's only October. And, you know, and I have yarn and I have dyes and I had, I really didn't have to buy anything, like you said. Yeah. And to be able to kind of run like a kid in a candy shop in this new space and just look at everything you've gotten acquired and say, I'm free to do this mm-hmm. can go both ways. You could be so overwhelmed that you don't even know where to begin, or you can just close your eyes and jump into the deep end of the pool and see where it takes you. Yeah. Mm. And fortunately, I'm of that personality because yeah. I know too yeah. many people that got overwhelmed by this year and just did nothing. And, you know, I, I, you can't say they regret it because they just couldn't do it. Right. And, and I feel badly for that loss of a year and for the inability to take the smallest thing and run with it. Mm. Yeah. That is a gift. And not everybody has that. Not everybody has that thought process and that confidence to just close your eyes and jump in the deep end of the pool. And see what I always feel like I can do anything after I talk with Daryl. Yeah, she really is encouraging and great to talk with. And stay tuned for the second half of our interview to hear more. Another thank you goes out to Rawhead the Recluse for providing music for our podcast. Find him at rawheadtherecluse.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe now. It will help us reach more weavers and people who are passionate about hand-created textiles. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Professional Weaver Society. And you can get full show notes at ProWeaverPod.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Professional Weaver Podcast. We look forward to sharing more episodes with you each Friday. Bye! Bye.